You're listening to TIP. Once a quarter, we sit down in the mastermind group and discuss where we see value in the financial markets. In this episode, Toby is pitching gold miners. Hari is long Splunk Technologies, a pick that Toby has been shorting. And my pick? That's Pinduoduo, the fastest company ever to reach $100 billion in market cap. It's a company that takes the best from Google, Amazon, and Costco. So without further delay, here's our mastermind group discussion, Q2 2021. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Brodersen, and it is time for the Q2 Mastermind meeting. Preston will sit this one out, but as always, we have Toby and Hardy with us today. Gentlemen, as always, welcome to the show. Good to see you, Stig. Good to see you, Harry. Good to see you, Toby and Stig. Hari, before we jump on this call, we just talked back and forth about you know, what was going on, and you mentioned that you wanted to talk about the Berkshire AGM. Why don't you kick it off with that? Thanks, Jake. Since this is the season for, for Berkshire AGM and this is our first mastermind after the most recent one, I wanted to know your thoughts on what was your key takeaways. And for me, one, it was a more interesting one because Munger was there on the stage this time compared to the last one. Buffett looked a little bit upbeat, but some of the things that stood out for me from the AGM was one, Buffett's talk about inflation and He's seeing that in his business. And it for the first time, I, I saw Buffett being a bit more candid and sharing some of the details from his business. I'm not sure whether it was just a casual mention or he wanted to send out a message. Uh, but anyways, I am interested in knowing your thoughts on the inflation aspect that Buffett covered and also in general about the AGM. I couldn't agree more that that was, that was going to be my takeaway as well. That was the first thing that sprang to mind when I thought of that meeting. The other thing was that, you know, on the softer side, the discussion about hosting it in Los Angeles so they could be close to Munger and then talking about the contribution and the relationship that they have had, I thought that was touching. That was really nice to see. But on the business side, the inflation stuff was the thing that stood out for me too. I've seen a lot of the commentary. I've had the opportunity now that we've the meeting has gone past a few weeks or almost a month now, a few weeks. So I've been able to see some of the, the reactions to his comments. I interpreted what he was saying as it was probably a little bit of a warning too, but mostly he was just saying, I'm a man who controls a business that has very wide diversification across this country and other countries. And across the board, we're seeing rising prices. And I just felt like he was saying, this is just something that I'm seeing and I'm obliged to tell my shareholders and probably obliged to tell the wider world. But he's not necessarily making any, he's not an inflationista. He's not sort of, it's not necessarily some like, he's not making an argument for gold or for Bitcoin or anything like that. He's just saying we're seeing it. And uh, then he leaves it to everybody else to interpret. And then of course, everybody else grabs it. And so there are people who say there's no inflation and they say he doesn't know what he's talking about. There are people who want to sell you some gold and they, they said that they completely agree with him and the Bitcoin guys are the same. So, it's funny that he just made a comment about his own business and it gets, everybody else gets to twist it and use it for their own purposes, which I'm going to do in a moment. I love that you're saying that, Toby. 
And I couldn't help but notice the 4.2% inflation year on year that came out here in recent news. So also going to say the inflation piece, oh God, it's so boring. But you know, that's, that's sort of like- <laughs> Must be right. Yeah, that was, was really stuck out to me. And I couldn't help but think, oh, my biggest equity position, that's Berkshire. And I was like, oh my God, they have so many capital expenditures. Uh, they have so much equipment. I think Buffett even mentioned it in the annual letter, like, they're number one and their AT&T is number two. And that's not necessarily a list you, you want to be at the top of, especially in times of inflation. And then you might think, well, I should go into you know, the Googles of the world because I want to have an inflation-proof business. But then you're like, well, if the Fed is going to increase interest rates, that means that all those future cash flows are being discounted back at a higher rate, which means that they're dropping value too. So this is just a very interesting dynamic that you see going on right now. So that was definitely also my key takeaway. And then you can't mention that without saying, you know, the slip that <laughs> Munger did with Greg's going to keep the culture. That was just, I don't know, it was just a, a fun one. I just love the way that you were looking at Ron Buffett's face and he's like, hmm, what happened there? So <laughs> I guess that's how I'm going to remember the 2021 uh, meeting. It was a much nicer one than the 2021 where he was alone in that gigantic auditorium. With sort of with the COVID haircut that we all had at the time. So it was a much better one given that they were in Los Angeles and uh, kind of paying tribute to Munger among the others. Trey and I did a, uh, our own breakdown of the meeting a few weeks ago. It's, it's episode 350 if, if anyone wants to check that out. And Toby, I know that you did one on your episode too? Yeah, on the podcast with Jake and Bill, we, we just gave our impressions of, of the meeting. Jake and Bill have both been long time Buffett watches, so there's some good takeaways. I don't know the exact number, but it's, it's this season of Value After Hours. It's a few weeks ago, 317 or something like that. Perfect. We're definitely going to, to link to it. So, Toby, I will throw this over to you here in a sec, uh, because as per usual, you will kick off your, your pick first. But I also really like what you said before about all these guys, they're like talking about Buffett's inflation prediction and they're just using for their own good. But then you're also like, but I'm going to do the same. So <laughs> with all of that said, let's kick that over to you. The way that I run my business is it's mostly a, we're mostly systematic with some other additional effort put on after we find these positions. So just one thing that I have noticed over the last, so we're bottoms up rather than sort of trying to make any kind of macro call. So to the extent that I talk about inflation or the gold price or other things like that, just to preface where I'm going here. You should know that their portfolio is always constructed from the bottom up. So it's not, I'm not working backwards from something that Buffett said or anything like that. It's not, it's not me trying to predict where I think inflation's going. It's not me trying to predict where I think gold is going. But that's my, the theme of what I want to talk about is, is gold. I have just noticed that my screens have started filling up with gold miners. And there's some, there's some interesting names in here. I don't own any of these things and I may not ever own any of these things, but I think that there's a very good chance that we do end up owning some of them. We're sort of going through that process now, trying to work out which ones we like. I have just want to talk about gold a little bit and gold miners. So we, the last time that gold had this great run-up was in the, the first decade of this millennium, and it was part of that commodity super cycle where China was going to buy a whole lot of commodities, so everything sort of ran like crazy, and they were the sort of sassy tech stocks of the first decade. And if you weren't in commodities, you sort of missed out on that run. At the end of that, in 2007, when the market fell over, where people might ordinarily think that gold miners or gold might provide some sort of hedge or might perform a little bit better 
through a market crash, they all performed worse. But that, the reason for that, in my opinion, was that going into that crash, they were all very expensive, including gold, because it was the end of that cycle. Now we're at the other end of that cycle where it's been a long period where value's underperformed, gold has underperformed. More recently, gold has sort of run up. But if you think about the conditions that you would like to see for a good gold run, it's probably fairly similar to the conditions that you would like to see for a good run in the cryptos or something like that. The only difference is that cryptos have had a very good run and gold is sort of where it was around about in about 2007, which is a long time ago now. And there's been a whole lot of money printing over that period of time and not a whole lot more gold discovered. In fact, there's about the same amount of gold in the world as there was in 2007, maybe like a marginally larger amount, but not much. So with all of that said, I think that if you just go through the list of gold miners, there's some very interesting names in there. And the one that stands out to me is, is Barrick Gold. And the reason I like Barrick Gold, and the ticker for that is G-O-L-D, just so you folks know. The reason I like Barrick Gold is, is twofold. One is that I think that all of the gold miners have got religion about their capital structures and about their costs. So their margins are great and their returns on invested capital are sort of getting towards acceptable points, which is interesting given where the gold price is. So it has run up to about where it was in 2007. And it looks like it's if Buffett is right about inflation, that's likely to be a place where there will be some protection. Gold has traditionally operated in that way. It's a an inflation hedge. So I think that Barrick Gold is one that Berkshire has owned very briefly in a very small amount. It's very likely that it was Ted or Todd who bought it. It wasn't a Buffett position. It was never big enough to be a Buffett position. And they only held it for about a quarter or so, maybe a year, and then they, they spat it back out again. Take from that what you will. The only comment that I would make is that it's difficult to value gold companies because that commodity input, that gold commodity input means that you're very much tied to what the performance of the underlying commodity does. But I think this is an unusual period of time because we've had you know, a very unusual year with COVID and the shutdown. And then we've had very accommodative printing from the Fed. Plus, we've got now the federal government, the fiscal policy is as, as accommodative as it has ever been too. There seems to be a lot of money going out to a lot of different people. And those are the conditions that create inflation. So there's a, there's a big debate whether it's transitory or whether it's here to stay. I don't think that anybody has really ever predicted it properly in the past. So I don't think that anybody's predicting it now. I just think it's a risk. And if you've got a portfolio and you've filled up with Bitcoin and software as a service type stocks, lots of tech, probably doesn't hurt you to have a little bit of exposure to the gold miners. So why gold miners rather than gold itself? You just get a little bit more leverage in the miners. They tend to go up a little bit more when the gold price moves up. That cuts both ways. They tend to go down a little bit more when the gold price goes down. So I think that if you were to look around for some safe companies with a good balance sheet, good cash flows that would benefit from gold going on a pretty strong run here, then I think your list would include Barrick Gold. I'd also look at things like Alamos Gold, which is the ticker's AGI there, and Kirkland Lake, similarly the ticker's KL. All of those companies have got net cash balance sheets, good margins. I think that they're well positioned and sort of big enough and, and broadly diversified enough that you get some safety if it doesn't work and you get a pretty good ride if it does work. That's my pitch, fellas. Hey, Toby. That's a very interesting pitch. True to being a value investor and a contrarian. I had two questions. One at the macro level about this Bitcoin replacing gold. 
how do you see it because that kind of plays into your pitch at the macro level and at the company specific level barrick gold one of the issues with gold miners is as you said like discipline in terms of their capital allocation which i think you have already looked into but the other one is access to safe mines or operations in safe geographical areas i was curious to know about those two aspects well that's the nice thing about those guys is that they are pretty well diversified around the world which is sort of why i prefer the bigger ones that are a little bit more diversified you might get less lucky in the sense that you know we're not necessarily looking for discoveries here we're looking for miners who are already producing across a variety of geographic regions so if there is any strife in any particular region and i know that there's chile has traditionally been an area where has been a quite a good location just jurisdictionally and they've they've passed some recent laws that might change the way that royalties are treated on gold or the way that gold is the way that miners are treated it's true also in peru it's true also in a few of these many of these south american countries so there's always geopolitical risk with gold which is why i just think diversification is the easy answer there you just look for companies that have got diversification throughout they all look pretty good to me now because they've had such a, anybody who's survived over the last 14 years court now has has had to get religion about their balance sheet and about their costs and so they all look much healthier than they did in 2007 i would say that if we get a big run from gold here you would need to start watching that stuff because it's a feature of gold miners that their margins don't really move much over the cycle because their costs go up exponentially as the gold price runs up because it just gets you need more people to mine it they want to get paid more the mines become more expensive so when they they buy a new mine it becomes more expensive they're not great businesses all the time forever and ever they're just at a cyclical low relative to where the gold is and i think that if we see some inflation then these things will perform very well let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next-level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions. Today I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? 
Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So one thing that I can't help but ask you, Toby, is do you see any kind of ESG kind of pressure coming to gold miners here soon? So for those of you who are not familiar with this, ESG is like the, the new black in, in finance. So the E is environmental, uh, S, that's social, and G, that's governance. So you see a lot of that right now. No mention of Elon Musk or anything that's going on with all that. But I kind of feel like some gold miners probably have like been under the radar. Do you feel like there's going to be a, a big pushback as more and more money is flowing in? And we might even see a green bubble, who knows? But I guess that was some of my, my thoughts going into that. Yeah, my view is that all of that stuff really helps incumbents. If you've already got an operating gold mine, it's so much easier for you to continue to operate and you might have to make some additional disclosures in your financial reports, which is what they all have to do. But contrast that with the position of someone who's trying to get a new gold mine permitted, that may be an incredibly difficult process, particularly in some of these countries like Chile. They've just had an election about this. Peru has these ongoing sort of battles with these the gold miners. I'm of the view that if you have an operating gold mine, you're at a huge advantage. And if they bring these ESG type regulations in, if they just tighten them up, if the world goes in that direction, then it, beca- it makes your operating gold mine, you get a real competitive advantage by virtue of the fact that it's already there and already working because they're not going to approve any new ones. So you're going to constrain supply further or not allow supply to grow right when the demand sort of kicks off because we see inflation and then we might see some speculation. And that's, that's sort of the way that I feel about it, that's potentially more of a good thing for them than a bad thing. You know, it's so interesting you are, you're saying that. There's just so much money flowing into these ESG-approved funds. And it's just, I guess one of the things that's a bit odd is that it really helps the big tech right now, as, the, as you might even think that they have enough tailwind, simply because they're disclosing what they're doing. They're typically not, you know, they're not a mining company or anything like that, so that it's not like they have a lot of emissions and, you know, they're big. So, since it's market weighted ESG approved, you know, you'll just have to buy a bunch of big tech as that money is flowing into it. So I just feel that's, that's interesting. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one, uh, Stig. I had another question to Toby about the cost of producing an ounce of gold. I think I had heard in one of the podcasts where they went into the detail, but I don't remember which podcast it was, about what's price at which companies are usually break even in terms of price or the cost. Do we do have any insights on that? I'm just curious. 
it varies from company to company. It varies from mine to mine. It depends on you know how far away it is from where you've got to get it to, how difficult it is, how how high up. Because a lot of this, funnily enough, the gold is found at altitude. There are some mines that there's not a lot of oxygen around near the mine, so they're hard, they're much much harder to mine. That's sort of what I was referring to before when I said the margins on these things are good. They all have lower cost. They're all lower cost producers, which is how they've been able to survive through this period where the gold price has been pretty depressed. If you look now, the gold price has sort of run up a little bit over the last, I don't know where it is necessarily on a week to week or month to month basis. I just mean over the last decade, it is now back close to where it was at its peak in 2011. But that's a very long run. That's 10 years now that it's been way down and and running back up. I think that the, the bigger sort of threat or the reason that the takeoff has been a little bit delayed in these things is I do think that so where previously it was hard to get exposure to gold itself, the proliferation of gold ETFs, particularly ones that are backed by the physical gold, the, you know, the FIS expressly backed by physical gold and other things like that, have made it, you know, for people who are looking at a financial version of gold to invest in it, there are gold guys who want their gold ingots in their own safe. And so those guys aren't going to be affected by what happens in the financialization of gold. But there are guys who may be more like me, who, you know, it's just a way of expressing a view at any given time. I could look at GLD, which is the gold ETF, or FIS, which is the Sprott physical gold ETF, or one of the miners. And so you just have to know basically what you're buying and, and what you're doing. And then what your attitude is. If you're, if you're thinking that the entire global financial system could shut down, then none of that stuff is going to help you. I don't know necessarily that gold ingots in your safe are going to help you then either, but that's definitely going to be, there's a, they're going to help you further along the path than, than having like a unit in an ETF. But then again, there's this, you know, Bitcoin clearly is serving that function for some people. If you're worried about inflation, there are people who are out there buying cryptocurrencies to get out of the financial system and to hedge themselves. And that, I think that's part of the reason why we haven't already seen a great run in gold and gold miners, that there are these alternatives out there. So it's difficult to know what's going to happen with Bitcoin. I don't want to really discuss it too much because I don't have any specific view on it. But I would just say that Bitcoin has had a very good run and gold has not and gold miners have not. And I sort of think that just the contrarian in me says that you sort of want to be where everybody's not, which means that I think that you probably... If you have those concerns, then gold and gold miners might be a more interesting avenue. Let me ask you a question, Toby, that is impossible to answer. So <laughs> that's going to be my disclaimer. Sounds good. Right on. What's the intrinsic value of gold? And please let me put a bit more color around that because I'm sure you're not going to be like, you know, Stig, it's going to be 2,323.8. I'm sure that's not going to be the answer. The reason why I'm asking is, you know, I'm, I'm sort of like, I'm, I guess I'm just wired that way. I'm looking at this as if this was an oil company. And if I were to buy a position in, I don't know, Exxon or Chevron, I would like to have a pretty good idea of what do I think the value of a barrel oil would be and what do I think the price of natural gas would be? And then just sort of like pedal back from there and figuring out what's my potential, what's the short-term implication, what's the long-term implications of that. And so with that said, Whenever you look at something like gold, you already out, laid out you know, inflation and some of the concerns you have with that. But how do you see the price of, of gold and, and relation to your thesis? There are various methods for figuring out, not really an intrinsic value, but where the gold price should trade. 
I don't know how useful or how predictive any of that stuff really is. So, I'm not, I just think it kind of overcomplicates matters. The only observation I would make in relation to the gold price is that it hasn't advanced since late September 2011. So, we're basically where we were or slightly below where we were at the very peak 10 years ago. It's sort of a meaningless statistic I get. It bottomed in something like 2015. It got down to a thousand bucks around about something like that. And then now it's sort of $1,700, $1,800 and it's run up a lot since then. But it's still below where it was in 2011. I think over that period of time, not much more gold has been discovered in the world and we've printed a whole lot of money. And so at some stage that inflation starts turning up somewhere. And I do think that we're sort of seeing it now. Buffett's mentioning it. Gold price is going bananas. Every single financial asset is going bananas. Just in my life, I know that things are more expensive than they were, you know, from kids' childcare to the grocery bill. Just everything seems to me to be a little bit more expensive. So, I, I'm anecdotally a believer in inflation is here. I don't know whether it's here permanently, but I kind of got that feeling that we're at the very beginning of a return to inflation that's north of where the Fed has sort of targeted. They've been targeting two. I think it's going to be a long way north of that. And there are other weird things in the system, right? Like the the 10-year is never going to get up over 2% because all of the federal government's revenues would be consumed by interest payments if that happens. So, there's going to be a pin on the 10-year. That's going to have weird effects in the system. And one of them might be a blowout in commodity prices, which you know we're seeing it across lumber, seeing it across just about all commodity prices. And I We've seen a little bit of it in gold. I kind of get the feeling that gold's time has come given where everything else is and gold miners will be a big beneficiary of that too. It's fantastic, Toby. It's good to hear that a true value investor like you are not looking at macro. And I'm sort of just, I'm teasing you a bit here because I kind of feel the same way. Like I'm taught like the church of Buffett and Munger. I'm not supposed to look at macro at all, but it's hard. <laughs> it's hard not to look at everything that's happening right now. You know, the people who say don't look at macro, the people who I've learned that from, mostly that's from Buffett himself. But the only thing that I would point out, you know, there was a period of time in the 70s when inflation really kicked off and gold did as well as Berkshire did for a period of, I think, 15 years or something like that. So, you got the, the yellow rock that doesn't really do anything performing as well as the, the greatest investor the world has known for a period of 15 years. That's a reasonable recommendation for it. Well said, Toby. Hari, why don't you go next with your pick? It's a very interesting pick. I'm, I'm really looking forward for you to, to present that to the audience. I'm pitching a company from my backyard here in the Silicon Valley, and that is uh, Splunk. Splunk is a provider of uh, software solutions that enable organization to get operational intelligence by harnessing their data, indexing it, searching it, monitoring it, and analyzing it. And when I say data, it's mostly from machines, whether it is servers in a data centers, IoT, Internet of Things, manufacturing systems or healthcare systems. All these machines are generating data. And now they're all hooked to Internet. And Plunk provides a way to gather the data and makes it easy to search and makes it easy to analyze it and monitor it, which is very critical for business operations. And in that line, there some of their main uh, offerings include cybersecurity, threat detection, which is a growing field nowadays, ML and predictive analytics, application performance monitoring, IT, event management and operations management, and so on. 
which are all critical functions for any business. And their claim to fame, they, they were founded in 2003. I've been using Splunk in many of the companies that I work for, both startups and bigger ones. So they're pretty pervasive that way. And the key technology is what they call it a schema on the fly. And to put it in layman terms, what it means is that traditional databases like Oracle, for example, needs data to be in a very structured way. So you've got to know how you are going to generate your data before you generate your data. That is, all these machines have to conform to a particular schema. And that's operationally almost impossible in today's world with diverse systems generating data. So it's all freeform. And that's the whole genesis of big data. And you can think of Splunk as one of those early big data companies in that way. They basically pioneered, along with other companies, this schema on the fly model where you can collect unstructured data, but they are somehow able to help you query it and get insights out of it in an easy-to-use interface. They say easy to use, but in my experience, it takes some learning curve. So, And that's actually one of their moat, so a competitive advantage. So I see as two competitive advantages that this company has. One is that switching costs. So one, they're mission critical. So there are a lot of moving parts and a lot of tentacles that this software needs to have into your various segments of your operations or infrastructure. So it's not easy to just uproot and just put some other solutions. It will take a lot of effort. There is a lot of upfront investment. And second, as I said, it's easy to use, but in order to really get good value out of their systems, there is a learning curve for employees. So there is a lot of training that goes in. So companies have to do quite a bit of investment to get best, best results. The second one is network effects. So as more companies get onto Splunk or start using Splunk, they will generate more data that helps fine-tune and uh, their ML systems that they have, machine learning systems. That makes them even better for new customers and so on and so forth. So it's like a cycle. Same cycle holds true for Google search, for example. Like more people search, Google gets better. And then more people will use Google. And the second uh, network effect, or you can call it the platform effect as well, is that they have an app store, what they call Splunk Base, where other vendors can develop apps on top of Splunk. And there are more than 2,000 apps now, which makes it very convenient for new customers because they can just pick and choose apps instead of developing their own solutions, which incentivizes more developers to develop apps on Splunk. So that kind of, you know, gives them that competitive advantage. But there are other competitors in this space, like AppDynamics from Cisco, IBM is getting into it, and even the big cloud providers can also take a stab. But um, my presumption is it's so pervasive now, and with all these stickiness, they can hold out. In terms of their growth strategy, apart from the organic growth by expanding into new customer base, they're really good at cross-selling. So, in fact, like in the past couple of years, their annual revenue per customers like once a customer sign up, effectively doubles within a year. And then over a period of few years, three years or so, it goes up to six times. That is just from one customer. So their lifetime value per customer is quite high that way because they're able to cross-sell. Because let's say you get into application performance monitoring, then you cross-sell into security threat detection, IT event management, and so on and so forth. And this reflects in their numbers. For example, 
the number of customers generating over 1 million in annual recurring revenue went from 124 in 2018 to 510 in this year. So they're constantly increasing customers that are generating considerable revenue. In terms of year-over-year growth, revenue growth, they have been consistently upwards of 30% to for, uh, up to 40% in past couple of years, except this year. And I'll come to that soon, why they dropped in revenue this year. Gross margin has been averaging around 80%, which is typical of other SaaS companies. Their sales and marketing costs, as you can imagine in a high-growth company, quite high at 63% of revenue. But like every other company, the the hope at least is that it will reduce. And today their adoption is quite good. 90% of Fortune 100 companies use Plunk for their monitoring platform. Their retention is also best in class, nearly north of 120%, which is you can compare it to any other SaaS companies. And their average revenue per user, and this is important in SaaS companies because adoption is an early indicator for retention or attrition. Their average revenue per user has been growing 12%, over 12% for the past five years, which is quite healthy. And one of the things that they have been investing heavily is machine learning. And their machine learning performance has been growing quite significantly in the past couple of years. So that is something that's kind of under the hood. Its results are not directly known, but it keeps making them stronger over a period of time. Those are some of the key statistics that kind of show their growth and their moat. However, their stock recently took a big hit. They are now at 118 per share, dollars per share, and that's down from $220 per share in August 2020. So in less than a year, they have fallen quite a bit. Their price to sales went from 11 plus to 8.5. And if you compare it with other companies like Microsoft and Google, they actually have a higher uh, price to sales than Splunk, which is a growth company with a small revenue base and has the potential to grow quite high. The reason for this, I believe, is that they have embarked on a change to their business model, wherein they're transitioning from licensing-based revenue to cloud or SaaS-based, subscription-based revenue. If you're aware of this, many years back, Adobe went through the similar transition and they took a hit in their revenue. So in fact, today, uh, as we speak, 50% of their bookings are coming from cloud or SaaS. And that's one of the reasons why this year we see an impact on their near-term top line and cash flow. As term licenses see large upfront payments are going and recurring revenue is increasing. So in the long run, this is good for the business, but in the short to medium term, it will be some pain. So that's one of the reasons why I am interested, because I believe that as companies digitize significant part of their operation, especially during COVID and post-COVID, as we are seeing, the need for managing, monitoring, analyzing data, detecting security threats, making predictions, all that stuff that Splunk offers becomes more and more important for customers, and hence their TAM is going to keep expanding for the foreseeable future. So that's the reason I am interested in Splunk, but I would like to hear from you about the valuation part, which I really haven't gone into. That's the reason I brought it up here. In full disclosure, I have been short Splunk in the acquirers fund. The reason why is it has been a valuation short and a few other things. When I look in the financial statements, 
I think that, and this is this is not necessarily something that's specific to Splunk, although the reasons why I'm short are specific to Splunk. To be full disclosure to you, Harry, my wife has a Splunk t-shirt and she's been wearing it around the house to troll me. And I've been saying, because I've, I've been short Splunk in the past and it didn't work out, but this time it has worked out. And I think many of the conditions that made me want to be short it when we put it on at the beginning of the year have sort of been fulfilled. And so it's no longer something that I would I wouldn't initiate a short here. It was it was initiated earlier on at a much higher price, and and now I think that a lot of that that obvious short has come out of it. So the reasons that I'm short when I look at the something like it has to be a high growth company, and so I, that transition from licenses to to a software as a service model or, or, or cloud based model that was always going to impact earnings in the short term, and I and that was going to frighten people out of the stock. But they also have this when I look at the financials. It seems to me that the revenue growth is great, but I just don't see how it falls through to the bottom line of the business. How do shareholders benefit rather than in insiders and, and employees? That is a good point, Toby. And that is a question for many Silicon Valley companies, I guess, in some, in some degree. And, and I, I, I agree with you because their net profit has, or net income has always been in, in the red so far. They have never shown a profit. And uh, the benefit of doubt I give them is that, okay, they're reinvesting in their business. But if you're a public company for a while, it becomes harder and harder to defend after a while if you're not generating any profits. Yes, I can see that particular aspect of it. I don't have an answer to you apart from giving them a benefit of doubt. Their EBIT has, with each year that the revenue goes up, EBIT gets worse. And this is, this is as I was saying before, this is not, and you acknowledge as well, it's not, it's not specific to these guys. I realize that there's sort of a, there's a competitive advantage to building out and becoming the dominant provider of whatever it is that you do, and you have to spend to do that, and that means that your financial statements don't reflect the quality of the business. And it's, and it's true that this is a very high-quality business. It's got high margins, and they could at any stage turn some switch and make this a profitable company. All that requires is sort of you know, the will of the management to do that, and the problem I can already hear the arguments on the other side that the moment they try to run this thing for profitability, they, they lose some of that advantage in a business sense. I just sort of, some of these companies need the support of the financial markets to, to continue to survive the way that they burn money. And I just wonder whether a crop of these things, and I'm not saying it's necessarily Splunk specifically, but if the markets sour on the stock of these companies, which there does seem to have been a sort of tech wreck over the last quarter and a half or two quarters, sort of mid Q4 last year to, to where we are now. And maybe it's turning around now, but it, that's sort of been my thesis for a while that you could be short these things because the valuations were just so stretched and that any sort of hiccup in the road was going to lead to a little bit of carnage, which I think has played out. But when I look at these valuations, these are still, they're still high from my perspective. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. 
This and other information can be found in the Funds Prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Another question that I would have for you, Hari, you mentioned the, the networking effects before, you know, the advantages of having developer building on top of it. And I can't, I can't help but Think about whenever you are pitching Slack too, and you mentioned that as an advantage as well. And I, I'm not trying to be like, oh, you know, a year ago you talked about Slack and how did that go about? I guess my point of, of saying this also because of the pick that I'm going to later, you can give the exact same criticism too about do you have a platform with networking effects? Do you have something that's been copied? And so whenever I'm looking at something like Slack, you know, I, I love Slack. I use it every single day. And, you know, whenever you, whenever you mentioned it back then, I was thinking, wow, that's a, that's a great mode to have. And you have people developing apps on top of that. And it's just networking effects are getting better and better. And then, you know, I realized what Microsoft were doing in Teams and how much of that that could be copied. And then, you know, Salesforce came in and took over Slack and everything that happened with that. But I guess I was a bit surprised of the networking effects weren't more, weren't better than they were at the time. And so whenever I look at 
at Splunk. I'm just trying to make the segue into Splunk here. The biggest three times as large as the next competitor, Datadog, and you have New Relic too, that's even smaller. And these are the networking effects that might be spawning here. It's getting bigger and bigger. You know, 90% of the Fortune 500 companies are using it. How much of this can be copied and how much disruption can we see here? Is this truly a platform bet with networking effects or uh, can someone replicate it? That's a great question, Stig. And in fact, when, when we talk about platform effect, it varies. All platforms are not created equal. For example, Apple Store is a different kind of platform than Splunk Base App Store because of the many-to-many relationship that Apple has, like numerous consumers and numerous producers. Whereas Splunk is an enterprise business and the App Store is much smaller in scale. So it's much harder to defend a Splunk App Store compared to Apple App Store. So they're not equal for sure. However, within the enterprise world, once you you get adoption to a place where there is enough adoption among good customers, really a good engagement among employees and developers, it's really hard for a newcomer to replace them. Having said that, it doesn't mean that they can't be, but it just becomes much, much harder. And that shows in the statistics that you just laid out, like they're 3x bigger than the nearest competitor. So those things give me confidence about their platform effect. But where the risk actually rises for them is these big public cloud vendors like Google, AWS, and Microsoft. Because all companies are moving to public clouds now. If this is called the featureization of companies, right? Like if of products, basically. If Splunk becomes a feature in AWS or Azure or Google Cloud, because they can just give it away for free or for very little price as part of a bundle. So that's what I would be watching out for. Or there might be, they might be just an acquisition target for one of these guys. Thank you for your response, Hari. And remember that question, because whenever you got to hear my pick, you can give the exact same criticism. So, uh, <laughs> and I'm not completely sure what to answer to that either. And so I've been struggling a lot with which pick I should come up with here for you guys. I've been looking at Pinduoduo, which is actually going to be my pick, and uh, another company, Flanking Covey, which is also doing the transition from license to subscription-based. But I think it can only be one today. Uh, I'm actually going to have a mastermind meeting, an investing mastermind meeting, which is sort of a slightly different format with uh, Toby, Jake, and Wes here in a few weeks. And uh, I'm going to pitch it then. So <laughs> at least the Frank and Covey. Anyways, I've been, I've been buying into two stocks this year, which is very unlike me. I don't trade as, as much as that. I kind of feel I'm over-trading if I'm buying, what, we're 23rd of May, and I already bought two different stocks this year. So Profligate stick. Yeah. <laughs> Profligate. It's, it's horrible. It's, uh, I kind of feel I'm one of those Robin Hood kind of traders. Like I'm all over the place. So crazy. It's crazy. I, and I've been, I've been looking at this company, Pinduoduo, here for, oh, for a long time. If I can just start sending Pinduoduo first, I guess. So that's my pick. The stock ticker is PDD. And it's a major e-commerce platform in China and has a market cap of $160 billion with more than 788 million active users. It's a, it's a relatively new company. It was founded in September 2015. But already this year, it's projected to overtake JD.com as the second biggest online retailer in China. Uh, number one is Alibaba's Taobao. 
This is a stock that I've known for a long time. As some of the listeners would know, I've been holding a position in Alibaba for quite some time. And this company, Pinduoduo, has just always been coming up as a competitor. And because I've been trained so well in networking effects and platforms, I was like, no, that's just never going to happen. How can anyone compete with, with Alibaba and Taobao and, and, and JD.com? And, and here we are. And here we are, and, and Pinduoduo just did that. And so, and what's happened since, you know, just over the past years, the price is now 6x, and I'm starting to slowly catch up, trying to figure out Pinduoduo. And just for the record, I, I haven't taken a position in Pinduoduo, which I probably should have a long time ago. I'm still sort of trying to, to figure it out, which is also why I'm bringing this uh, to the group here today. So the name in itself, directly translated, means together, more savings, more fun. And the company is just very interesting for so many reasons. It was the fastest company ever to hit $100 billion in market cap. Google took 12 years. Microsoft took 25 years. Pinduoduo just short of three years. It's just an incredible growth story. And I think the easiest way to think about the business is that it takes the best from Google, Amazon, and Costco with a twist. They said themselves they're Costco meets Disneyland. To me, I don't know if that doesn't make really any sense. So I'm going to go with the Google, Costco, Amazon with a twist kind of thing. So they are Google in the sense that the primary business model is that they make the money on sellers promoting their products to potential customers. And you will also notice that Pindu do almost have Google-like margins with gross margins nearing 50-60%. And the Google resemblance is no coincidence. Uh, the company was founded by Colin Kuang, uh, one of the lead people of Google China. The way I kind of feel it, it resembles Costco is that the business model is built up around the cheapest prices. And just like Costco, the savings are being passed on to the customers. Like Costco, you also buy your more, call it boring, household stables here. And perhaps you're going to save some of your more exciting shopping for other platforms. Perhaps you even want to go out in the fiscal world and go out and shop with your friends. And so as much as Pinduoduo is slowly changing their approach, starting to selling more branded goods, and they also go into the so-called tier one and tier two cities in China, which is think of the, the Shanghai's and the Beijing's of China. Historically, the bread and butter has been the more boring products in tier three and tier four cities in China. So they're very big in the rural area as compared to JD and, and Alibaba, which are, have not been doing as, as good a job in the, the more rural areas. So they also resemble Amazon to some extent, because just like Amazon also gives you tailor-made products, big data that they find recommended to you, you go to Pinduoduo with the intention to buy, which is extremely powerful. Whereas if you go to a Google, it's, you have certain mind. You will also get targeted with ads, of course, but it's, it's information yeah, you're seeking, typically. Unlike Amazon, though, Pinduoduo has no warehouses of stock, but products are shipped directly from the seller, and they also have to cover shipping costs. So where does this twist come in? Well, the shopping on Pinduoduo is different than anything else I've seen here in the West. It's so-called social e-commerce. So even though you're sitting at home, you can to some extent get the same experience as you do whenever you shop with your friends. So what does that mean? Well, whenever you enter the app, you'll find that there is not a huge search bar as whenever you go to Amazon.com. Rather, it's set up to browse. So it's more like if you're shopping around with your friends. And when you find a product you like, you see two different prices. So one is a price for one item that you can buy right away, and then a lower price that if you buy the product with 
a small team, you can then get a lower price. And this is one of the fantastic things about Pinduoduo. No one is supposed to just do it yourself. That's the entire point. It's sort of like Tupperware. I think that's the best example I can come up with. You use and see friends, and you know that's how the sales process works. And as we all know in business, doing the actual sales, that's the most important thing, and that's the hardest thing to do. So let's say I'm going to buy 10 apples. I can buy them at click here now price, which is a higher price, and it's almost like hidden, that price. Or I can buy together with my friends, and that price is determined 24 hours later. The more my friends who buy the product, the cheaper it will be for all of us. And Pinduoduo is then integrated with the Chinese super app, WeChat, owned by Tencent. And this is just such an important logistic advantage. You know, WeChat has over 1.2 billion monthly active users. WeChat users spend 82 minutes on the platform every single day. WeChat users send 45 billion messages daily. It's all like incredible to think about how impactful WeChat is. And by the way, Tencent also owns stock in Pinduoduo. So they have a very good middleman there to help them communicate and market their products. So after my, my purchase, I do have multiple options to ask my friends, both on WeChat, but also on QQ, to go in and, and help me with this purchase. So we can all get a bargain. If you're not familiar with QQ, it's a Chinese platform, social games, music, shopping, microblogging, movies. It's a huge website. It's actually the fifth most visited website in the world. So I know it sounds a bit odd because a lot of people in the West haven't heard about it, but it's pretty big in China. It makes total sense to me. It makes total sense to me. I think it's a really clever way of shopping. The way that I thought Groupon originally was going to work was something exactly like that, where they say, look, here's the price if you just want to buy this thing immediately for yourself. But if you can get, because anytime a vendor wants to sell something, it makes so much more sense to sell more of it. You want to sell more of it and you're happy to give a lower price. That's how wholesale works and every sort of gradation along that scale. If you can get a whole lot of people together and buy more of them, will sell it to you for a lower price. And it works for both parties. They make more sales. So it seems like there's a, a virtuous sort of circle to it that should power something like that forward. And that social is so powerful. Where if four of your friends are buying something and they need a fifth one purchased and you're the person who sort of makes up the five, it's very hard to say no. You know, you have to kind of go out there and buy it. So it's a brilliant business strategy for selling stuff. That growth is just absolutely bananas growth. And including in the, the revenue line and in the, the stock price. I guess that's sort of the, the thing that is always going to be the tripping point for me is just that these, I don't know how you value something like this. And this thing looks sort of nosebleed, eye-poppingly expensive. I don't want to derail you if, you, if you're going to deal with that. Yeah. So, <laughs> Toby, it, it's a good point. You know, how do you value it? It's around, what, today, 40 times free cash flow, which I know it's a crazy world and we're sitting here, three value investors, and we're talking about, well, is it cheap if it's like 40 times free cash flow? What you're looking at is a top line that just, oh God, it's just growing so fast. So in 2018, 13 billion huans. The exchange rate is one, one to six. It's about, what, 2 billion US dollars. Then it was more than doubled in 2019 to 30 billion. And then 2020, it was 60 billion. So 100%. So how do you value something, you know, to, to Toby's point, how do you value something that grows 100% or more a year that's trading at 40 times free cash flows? Is that cheap or is it really expensive these days? That's, uh, that's very interesting. Stick, that's an interesting pick. As you mentioned, they have a good platform effect going for them. But at the same time, the pattern that I have seen uh, with Chinese companies is that there is a much more faster rate of disruption than 
other markets. And as you said, Pendu just dislodged JD. That might happen to Pendu as well. Because I think Chinese users seem to be more open to new ways, new habit formations than, say, the US or other markets. So that's number one. Number two is when we talk about any Chinese companies, it's hard to argue against their growth because of the huge market they have and the growth potential, ever-expanding TAM, and then hence the high valuations. However, uh, one of the things I wanted to bring up, which is not in the conventional wisdom today, is the coming demographic bust in China. That means people aging faster, there being less folks in their 20 to 30s and 40s and more people in their 60s to 70s to 80s, which means their consumptions go down and savings go up. And, and China is supposed to be one of the fastest aging populations in the world today, even if you go by their official numbers. And some, some folks like Peter Zayan in his book, Disunited Nation, puts it as much higher than the official numbers. So that is one concern for the longer term investors. Like if we are looking for the next one or two years, I think that should not be a big deal. The second one is their financial reporting structure. How much can we trust? That has been one of the concerns uh, Kyle Base and other investors have been bringing up when it comes to Chinese companies. And we have seen Luckin, I I forget the coffee, uh, Starbucks of China recently accepted uh, some of the misreporting that they did. So that's a huge risk we have to assume when we are investing in any Chinese company. And the third one is the heavy-handed government regulation. And we don't know when that will drop on any of the companies. For what reasons? Like Tencent, for example, got dinged for their video games being too addictive to children. So there were some regulations introduced, which they took a hit. Alibaba faced a lot of regulations and regulate and fines because Jack Ma said something in a speech. So it is safe to say that in China, regulation doesn't work like US. So these are some of the risks that I assume for any Chinese company, any ADR from China that I'm investing in. So those are some of my key concerns. Great questions. You talk about regulation. I think that's, that's very, very tricky. I mentioned before, uh, I have a position in Alibaba. I've been trimming that position and bought more Berkshire, but it's still a position that I have. I think I have around 3% of my portfolio in Alibaba. And you know, that took a huge hit with everything that happened with Ant Financials and the regulation coming in. And lately, what we're seeing, we've seen Pindu do, it's trading today $130, and it was trading around $200 not too long ago. And a lot of that came from the, the regulation uh, coming in for all e-commerce. Like the Chinese government wants to, wants to know all the data uh, of these companies. And that's some, like an investor, that's probably not what you, what you want to see. So uh, yes, that's a, that's a huge risk. Not sure what to do about it. Like knowing your limitations of your circle of competence, I would say that Chinese regulation is, is not one of them. I think it's, it's one of those where I would just say, I'm just going to pay a little less because I just don't know really what to, to do about it. And I don't trust it that much. You were talking about the disruption before also, Hari, uh, in one of your, your first questions. I think that's a great point. There's so much disruption going on in China. People form habits so much faster than what we see in the West, especially online. You know, we, we used to talk about the big three. The big three being Alibaba, Tencent, uh, and Baidu. Now, Baidu is almost not there, right? You're talking about Pindudu and Meituang. And you know, both, both the companies have just been tarnished here <laughs> over the past few 
few weeks with, with all the regulation stuff that's been going on. I don't know. You know, I, I can easily see the argument why you would buy an index fund or buy a Chinese tech index or something like that, simply because it's so difficult to figure out. Another risk, just to, to give the, uh, the bear case to this, because I'm not, and people should definitely keep the bear case in mind. I was, I was doing one page of a pitch. I, I actually wrote nine pages down with, with, with all my, my, with my bull case. And I don't think I can cover all of it today. It's probably be way too long, but there were so many good things going on for this company. And the bear case to that is that this whole social e-commerce, that has really taken off. And what happened? Well, Alibaba and, and Tencent have said, let's try and do the same thing. Let's also try and subsidize our customers. Because one of the reasons why they've been growing so fast is because you know, they're subsidizing so much. So like, they've been, they've been burning cash to a huge extent. Actually, if you look at the, the financial statements, like the earnings are not looking pretty. The free cash flows are looking a bit prettier. Colin Huang owns, the founder owns 30% of the company. And one of the reasons why he hasn't been diluting more, because you'll be thinking, a company that's been growing so fast and been subsidizing so much is because he's just burning cash and he has to raise capital all the time. It's because counterfeit products, I think everyone knows that that's a, that's a big deal in China. And Pindu has been struggling with it together with Alibaba and, and Tencent too. They've had those issues too. They have the um, so-called 10x rule where Alibaba has the 3x rule. And that is, that's the penalty for counterfeit products on the revenue basis. And so that's one thing. And then all the merchants who are on the platform has to pay a, a large fee to be a part of it, sort of like to, as a measure of, hey, we know we can deduct that, that fee if there's any kind of counterfeit issues that you're going to have. So they're being flooded with cash. Like they have a, a really good cash cycle. And the other thing is that once they do the purchase, they already receive the cash even before the final price has been settled. They have a really good cash cycle. So it's not being diluted that much, but they're still on this growth spree. Now they're facing you know, Alibaba and Tencent coming in and starting to subsidize and building their own social platform. And that's sort of like where the test is, is really for Pinduoduo. And I don't really know how this is going to, to go down at all. Is this a platform? Do they have the true networking effects? Or is it more something that just be copied because Alibaba have approximately as many active users and if they're doing the same thing with the social shopping, well, why not just stay on Alibaba and they already have you know, the whole ecosystem there? I was just going to say that was one of the things that really stood out to me when I looked at the financial statements that it, the ca- free cash flow has been surprisingly strong and growing sort of commensurately with the revenues, which is something that you would like to see in a really strong company. And at 37 times free cash flow, growing at 100% a year, it's sort of, if those things all hold true, it's cheap. Yes. That's the thing. You know, if that holds true, it's, it's cheap. If they are going to see the same disruption as they've been put into the market. It's, it's not cheap. You're buying something stupid at 40 times free cash flows. You, know? you don't want to do that. Based on all the numbers, uh, I agree with Toby and you that it looks very interesting, except that we, we got to know some of these unanswered questions very well before we can make it like a big part of our portfolio. And that's the thing, Hari. You know, the, the reason why I would argue that it's relatively cheap you know, I'm looking through that lens that it's growing 100% a year right now. Of course, it can't continue to grow 100% a year. There's only so many Chinese people, but you see a high growth. And, and one of the, I guess one of the things that if you want to invest in this, and again, I, I haven't made my initial investment. I probably should have a, a long time ago, but it's if you really want to wait for clarity and see what Alibaba and Tencent is doing, well, the, a lot of that gain is probably gone whenever you realize that, you know, Pinduoduo is, is going to, to make it. 
But what I want to say is that one of the key metrics I really look into is how much merchandise do each customer spend on Pinduoduo? Because that's one of the issues that they had. So if you look at something like JD, they have around uh, 6,000 won a year, which is just short of what's called eight to 900 US dollars. For, uh, for Alibaba, it's around, well, $1,200, $1,300 a year. And now for Pindu, it's like $350. So people do not spend as much money on their platform as the other platforms. But it has doubled in a year. That's one thing. The other thing is that it's expected that you are not spending as, as much on merchandise with Pinduoduo because they have been targeting tier three and tier four cities in China. Historically, it used to be women 25, 35 from tier three and tier four cities in China. They just don't have the same kind of a budget. And for many of them, it's the first interaction with e-commerce. And then if you add on top of that, most products are commodity type products and they're white labeled. So it's not like Alibaba and, and, and JD which are targeting typically tier one and tier two cities, more branded goods. And so what's happening right now is that Pinduoduo is targeting a Barber and JD's market and vice versa. And who's to win? That's one of the things. Let me try and actually go back and answer one of your questions there, Hari, about demographics. You know, we have seen the new consensus coming out here that's which has been done every 10 years. And it was first postponed and then they came out with the numbers and they were sort of like saying, well, we're still growing as a population and as happened so many times whenever the Chinese government is coming up with that, no one really believed it. Uh, a lot of people were talking about that it was actually shrinking, which is probably not what they want to, to hear. But because of so many reasons, the, the one-child policy and everything that they came with that, that is, that is what we're seeing right now. And so I think you bring up a good question. How is that going to influence a company like Pinduoduo? The short answer is, I don't know. I would say, say that there's still a lot of runway, especially in the short term. Pinduoduo is really big in the rural area. Internet penetration is actually still low in those areas. So short term, that's something I'm, I'm looking at. You know, just in, in 2017, June, the number here I, can, I pulled up is 34% internet penetration is in the rural area, whereas it was 69 in urban. Here, fast forward three years, June 2020, we were looking at 52% for rural areas. So going from 34 to 52, now having internet. And then... Urban went from 69 to 76. So there's just so much growth still. Obviously, whenever you look at markets where people don't have internet, that's not where the biggest orders are coming from. But it is something that's, that's uh, worth mentioning. How that's going to play out over, I don't know, 20 years, 30 years with the demographic growth, how much the adaptation rate is going to be as we see in aging society. I guess my shorter term worry of that would more be disruption, just general, like, can they still compete with JD.com? Can they still compete with Alibaba? I guess I don't know the, the answer to that. I think that it's such a commoditized space. I guess if you're going to see the full potential of a company like this, you want to see it start spawning. Just like you've seen Alibaba start spawning into, into cloud and other businesses, and like what you've seen with Amazon. I don't necessarily see this company doing like your 3x or 5x if it's, if it's only online sales. I think the competition is, is too fierce. And I'm saying this even, even though you're looking at huge margins. If you're looking at Pinduoduo, for instance, you know, the, the latest gross margins were 67%. It's incredible. You know, it's, it's not like the retail rates that you, you see for, for your Walmarts and Costco. There's just so many other things that that's really going on for this. And I know I'm sort of like abdodging a kind of feel some of the, <laughs> some of the, some of the bad case, but I, 
if anyone is bare, I guess it's, it's me, which is also why I haven't taken position. But a framework that I want to, to use whenever we're talking about sales, I've been focusing a lot of sales here recently because I, I kind of feel to, we need to understand the sales models of the companies that we're investing in. You know, I, I talked before about Frank and Kobe that we're going to cover a lot more and like they're building up a sales force and the implication of that. And, and I've been thinking a lot about the sales process of this social e-commerce and if that's going to be the new way of, of doing commerce. And so the framework that I used was Chaldini's uh, book, Influence, which is just a wonderful, wonderful book. We also covered here on the podcast. So if you're interested, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. He has six principles that are universal for, for making a sale or getting your way, which to most companies to make a sale. And that's reciprocity, commitment, consistency, social proof, liking, authority, and scarcity. And I would like to talk about the business model of Pinduoduo and how that ties back into that framework. So reciprocity, which is the internal pull to repay what another person has provided us. If I call you, Harry, and I'm saying, well, would you, would you join my team? Assuming that you like me, you know, it's, it might be hard for you to say no, or perhaps it's been the other way around last week. Perhaps I was supporting your, your team and now I'm like texting you and like, oh, could you support my team? So that's reciprocity. Commitment consistency is another bias we have. So if we advertise a product for our friends, we try to talk them into it so we can all get a lower price. We are susceptible to have confirmation bias and to continue to buy that product because we already put a name on it. Like this is what we should be buying. We have social proof, another bias. Whenever we are unsure, we look to similar people. We look to peers. What do they provide us with in terms of getting the right action? So social proof is just, you know, fits right into Pinduoduo's model. Liking, another thing, you know, going back to the Tupperware party, you know, you inviting your friends. So the friends that you're going to invite to your team, you know, that's people you like, that's your friends. Even if you don't want the product, it can be, it can be hard. And so authority, that's another thing. And this is actually a really, really cool thing for a Pinduoduo. So whenever you're trying to buy a product, like it's very interactive. So whenever you go to the platform, you can speak to the seller. You can actually literally speak to the seller, uh, not just through promotional videos that they recorded, but actually just with like they're sitting online talking to you, showing off their potatoes or whatever it is that they're doing. And they have a small army of social media influencers too that are selling and, and getting paid by Pinduoduo to do these things and getting commissions off of that. So authority, that's another thing. And then one thing that's just, that's just amazing is scarcity. Like, the way they have like, it's almost like casino algorithm whenever you use the platform. So I mentioned before, you have the whole 24 hours to close the sale. But whenever you, you log in, you can get two-hour coupons. Think about it, two-hour coupons that you, you log in, you might just get a small present. You know, that's one of the ways they're subsidizing and generating that growth. It's going to expire in, in, in two hours. So you better go and find something and then recommend it to your friends. It's almost difficult to explain, but it's like, you go in there, you get a few points. Actually, just to log in. The more you interact, if you share something, even if you don't buy, you get more points. And once you get more points, they activate different coupons. They also have roulette wheels that's spinning and you get different kind of awards depending on how many points you get. All that dopamine is just being released over and over again. And so for, for those of us who read Influence and we talked a lot about psychology and how that plays into the stock market, I kind of just wanted to mention that as one of the frameworks, why... Why I found Pinduoduo interesting, I'm not saying that a major platform like Taobao can replicate it. I still think there's a bare case for that. It's something I can definitely see why it's so effectful and why they went from zero to $100 billion market cap in less than three years. 
that's interesting stick and i i think as i said if i just look at it as a company without any of those caveat it looks really compelling and also i i think you mentioned it's a google plus amazon plus costco maybe you should throw in facebook right <laughs> because of the social aspect that makes me think why can't facebook do something like this as a feature in their product and again that's the problem with the habit formation is where i have seen at least what i have observed is in us habits stick much harder than in china because they're for various reasons the user seems to be seem to be very dynamic and taking on new habit and whereas in us it's like much slower like facebook wechat hasn't happened with facebook yet it is still facebook and whatsapp there's a lot of backlash if they try to do something like wechat and whatsapp so there's a lot of of course for privacy and security concerns i think those things are on top of mind for us customers or consumers whereas we don't have such barriers in china so definitely i feel it's a compelling case the reason i brought out my concerns was more at a macro level they're not specific to this company and i don't mean to say this company is this company is cooking their results or cooking their books it's just that it's a base rate right like we have seen such companies we have seen such scenarios is like how can we make sure these guys are all not doing something like that that was my only comment I think you bring up a good point and I don't have a good response to that. I don't know if they're cooking the books. You know, I I looked through the financial statements, those on the numbers that I I look to, especially if if I invest in in foreign markets, I'm just a bit more cautious and I just want to pay a, a low multiple, which is also why I'm like is 40 times free cash flow even though it's growing 100% in the year, is that cheap or not? I I don't really know at this stage. It it is something I'm definitely keeping on my my watch list. And I think you have a good point whenever you're talking about habits formation, how does it work commerce in 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 China compared to the US. Now in China, 50% of commerce that's online and that's growing rapidly. In the US it's 13%. Like we all think, you know, that Amazon is taking over the world. And yes, there are like what 50% market share what not of e-commerce, but when it comes to total retail, it's just so different in the states and it's actually a lot more fragmented than probably most people think. compared to China where they have like the big 3 and that's just how they do commerce. And so I think it's only a question of time before we start seeing this in the west. Uh it probably already has happened I just haven't seen it yet because it's just so impactful because there we just have these universal principles and perhaps it is easier to do in China which is probably also by seeing it there first than in the west but yeah I I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what we're going to see. Before round this show off, I just want to give a quick hand off to some of our friends or the Acquire podcast. They did a wonderful, they did a wonderful, I think it was 2 or 3 hour podcast episode about Pinduoduo. It's not so much in terms of having as an investment case, but it's more like what's the story, how was it formed, more about the founder, how he's been mentored by like the biggest tycoons in China and even even as a part of one of the charity dinners with Warren Buffett when he was 26 and you can talk about he's been mentored by some pretty big shot people and so a lot of interesting things in that episode now make sure to to link to that before we round up the show as always hari toby i'd like to give you the opportunity to tell the audience where they can learn more about you i run an etf called the acquirers fund the ticker zig i kind of, i'm kind of the anti arc it's very deep value and uh, i tend to be short some of the the, the frothier names so if you got a big exposure to arc you should take a look at zigas maybe as some sort of hedge that and i run a small and micro fund 
with the ticker is deep there. It's all US-based. And uh, I've written some books. My most recent one is The Acquirer's Multiple, which came out in 2007, and it's available in Amazon. And I'm always around on Twitter at Greenback, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D. Thank you, Toby. Always great to have you. Hari, where can the audience learn more about you? You can always uh, reach out to me at, on Twitter at Hari Rama is my handle and uh, my blog, bitsbusiness.com. Look forward to hearing your comments and engaging with you all. All right, guys. So that was all that we have for this week's episode of The Investors Podcast. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. We are also starting to pump out a lot of content on YouTube, so make sure to subscribe to that too. Hari, Toby, thank you so much for making time for us here today. Thanks, fellas. Good to see you both. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.